listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. So now, though, we turn our attention to God's Word. So would you join me in standing as we hear God's Word read together? This is from the prophet Micah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheh in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. Her wages shall be burned with fire. And her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm Pastor Joey, and I am curious if there are any other picky eaters in the room. Yes, one, two, three, okay. Yeah, none of the adults were willing to admit to that first hour, but kids, I'm glad that you're more honest and you're with me here. Uh, so let's, let's run through some of the foods that I don't like. Beans. Who dislikes beans? Thank you. Yep, I see you. You're with me. Uh, mushrooms. Slimy. Okay, good. We got a little more. Tapioca. Like, who likes to eat pudding that's like slugs exploding in your mouth? No one anymore, right? Oh, tapioca. Vegetables? Just in general? Okay, I got one, one or two. Yeah, I am not as bad as I used to be. I, I will admit that, and that's primarily due to the influence of my wife. I use influence uh, somewhat euphemistically. We, were, we had only been married for a couple of years, and she had been facing the challenge of what can she cook for me, a picky eater, uh, because she would bring out different foods and be like, I don't even know how to spell couscous. Why would you eat it? And things like that. And uh, so I, I just, I remember clearly one meal where we're sitting down to eat and I was helpfully describing what wasn't particularly working with that dish for me in, you know, in particular. And uh, she just, I think, had had enough and said, you know what? Your picky eatingness, your justifications for why you won't eat this and you won't eat that and you won't eat an orange unless I peel all and every little piece of pith off of it and the, the whole thing, all of that, she's like, it has nothing to do with what you think or what you taste. It has everything to do with what your mom won't eat. 
And I was like, now hold on a second. I'm willing to admit I'm a picky eater. I am not willing to admit that it is entirely arbitrary and that none of it is founded in reason. But she wasn't wrong. Somehow, without my parents ever telling me, I learned that normal people don't eat spinach because spinach is gross. Normal people don't eat mushrooms or tapioca or vegetables because all of those things are gross and normal people don't eat them. Uh, but Jenna looked at me and she said, you are a picky eater because your mom is a picky eater and if you're not careful, our kids will be picky eaters. Well, we are studying the book of Micah and beginning our deep dive into the book of Micah uh, beginning this week. Uh, because Micah has some things to say to both parents and the kids. Uh, this week, Micah is well, he's focusing more on the, the parenting. Next week, he's going to focus more on the kids and their own behavior. Now, I'm actually using parenting and kids here as an analogy because Micah isn't talking specifically about parents and kids. He's talking about the nation as a whole. Now, if Micah were alive and working today, we might call him a uh, public intellectual or uh, a religious contrarian. Uh, some people would lab label him as conservative, uh, always going on and on about personal responsibility. Others would put the label liberal on him because he's consistently harping on the sins of the system and wanting to reform a system from the top down, from the national level. And I guess because he does both and because it's in the Bible, maybe we should just call Micah biblical. This week he focuses on the top down issues, the parenting issues, how sinfulness and injustice and oppression and dehumanization at the top trickles down and guides and directs, he uses the word infects, the individuals living within that nation or within that family or within that system. So we're going to jump right into Micah chapter 1 because I don't want to waste any time this morning. And as we walk through chapter 1, we're going to draw closer and closer to Micah's inevitable conclusion that the sins of the parents permeate the whole house. The sins of the parents permeate the house and, in fact, radiate beyond it. Let's get started. We're going to jump right in with verse 2. Micah chapter 1, verse 2, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. Immediately, this, is, this sounds good. He, to a, a Jewish person facing military oppression and opposition from the nations around Jerusalem, Judea, this sounds good. He is preaching against the nations, the pagan nations, the, non, the nations that don't have a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. This is good. Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. It's encouraging so far if you think it's directed at the pagan nations, but there's kind of a hard turn here in verse 5. All of this, all of that that meteor-striking earth-style destruction and judgment, all of this 
is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So apparently it's not about pagan nations after all. God is coming to judge his own family, his own children. But it does say he is witnessing against the peoples of the earth, the, the pagan nations. What, what's happening here is that God is warning the countries around Israel that, hey, judgment is coming. I'll prove it by starting with my own house. I'll prove it by starting with my own people, my own kids. Which sets the stage for all of the rest of what Micah says. Hey, to everyone looking on and watching on, and he'll talk more about that in chapter 4, chapter 7, to all of you nations looking along, if God is willing to judge his own people, if he won't let his own special people that he has chosen a relationship, if he won't let them off the hook, well then, dear nations, there should be no doubt that judgment is also coming to you. Judgment is also coming to you. Now, what has Israel done? What has God's covenant family done? Well, it starts to, to come out in verse 5. Uh, all of this, all of this destruction is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Now, what is the transgression of Jacob? The transgression of Jacob, the northern half of the two kingdoms of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, the capital city? And what is the high place of Judah? High place being a reference to pagan altars of worship, sin, in other words. Is it not Jerusalem, the capital city? Why is the entirety of the nation going to be judged? Because of what is happening at the center, what's happening in the capital and the, the consequences for Samaria are dire, verses 6 and 7. It's essentially just going to be flattened. And in fact, a few years after Micah preaches this sermon, that's exactly what happens. It's the whole city, the, that whole northern half of the kingdom is, is leveled. But Micah is living and preaching in the southern kingdom, the southern half, and so he has a message for the southern half specifically. He says, this isn't the worst of it. Look at verse 9. Her wound, Samaria's wound, is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Another translation puts it a little more poetically. It says, Samaria's disease is incurable. It has infected Judah, it has spread to the leadership of my people, and even to Jerusalem. Now, I wish we had time to go into Chronicles and Kings and read the whole history of the kings of the northern half and the kings of the southern half during this period when Micah is preaching. It's all there. You can go find it and read it for yourself. I'll cross, or I'll, I'm not going to cross-reference it. I'm just going to summarize the kind of repeated refrain, especially for the northern kingdom. The king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, there's a little bit of mitigation of that when it comes to the southern kingdom. He did good according to his father. Nevertheless, he allowed pagan worship to continue. He did okay. Uh, but it's not until Hezekiah, the third king under which Micah serves, that anything starts to change. Um, but the, the, the sin at the center, the disease at the center, the, the cancer in the capital is spreading is the king does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Things like betraying their covenant commitment, disenfranchising the poor, abusing their power, looking to the false gods of neighboring 
countries for protection, using the temple for the worship of idols. But the real tragedy is that the sin in the center has spread. It doesn't just stay in the capitals. What's done in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. It moves on out. So in verses 10 through 15, uh, Micah uses some creative wordplay to evoke a sense of foreboding over uh, the web of interconnected towns and villages outside of Jerusalem. Uh, rather than go through and try to explain the, the, the rhyming and the puns of each one of these, let me put it in words we might understand. Uh, it, it would be like saying this, the sin of Indianapolis has spread, and Broad Ripple will become a, na- a narrow, dry bed. Whitestown will be blackened, Westfield will wither, Noblesville will lose its nobility, the riches of Carmel won't save, Fishers will cut bait and run. Zion will abandon Zionsville, Greenfield's fields will burn, Speedway will screech to a halt, and Brownsburg will go Downsburg. (laughs) And it's all traced back to the capitals, to Samaria, to Jerusalem. The sin of Samaria has infected Jerusalem. The sin of Jerusalem has spread all the way even to Micah's hometown, he lists. He's driving towards this conclusion that the sins of the parent permeate the house. The sins of the people in charge radiate out to everyone else. I was uh, teasing a friend recently and said to him something like, you know, I I know your kids. I've seen your kids in action. I, I know they're knuckleheads. I know you tried, uh, but they're definitely responsible for what they do. They're responsible when they screw up and they do the wrong thing. But on the other hand, they do have you for a dad, so is it all their fault? And that's the kind of awkward laughter of like, you know, it hurts because it's true of all of us and all of the kids that are in here. We're all knuckleheads. We all do things that are wrong. We're all responsible for what we do. But our default actions were also kind of built in us by the family we grew up in, right? If you grow up in the kind of family where you have a a dad who is climbing the ladder at all costs, and it doesn't matter what he sacrifices to do it, then you end up with kids whose default behaviors are a reaction to that. Either they climb the ladder themselves to try to impress their dad or react against it because of how badly it it hurt them. You you grow up in a family where um, that mom had kids because she wanted somebody to unconditionally love her. And you end up with kids who are smothered by the weight of their mom's need for affirmation, and either they figure that's the only way to parent, so they parent their own kids that way, or they detach from connections to anyone. Now, is, is the kid, the, the, the son whose dad climbed the ladder, is he responsible when he does the same thing to his own kids? Absolutely. Is it all his fault? Well, is the, the daughter who smothers her own children to try to get love out of them that she couldn't get elsewhere, is she responsible for her actions? Absolutely. Is it all her fault? 
Well, it works both ways. It's not just negative examples. They're positive examples, too. You know, you grow up in a family that models forgiveness and reconciliation, and you have kids who are able to empathize with how they may have accidentally and unintentionally or intentionally hurt other people, and they know what to do about it. Uh, you grow up in a family that forces kids to do uh, basic things like table manners, and you end up with kids who are at least, by the time they get adults, somewhat used to the idea of putting other people's needs first. S- somehow, we've, we've gotten into our minds this idea that good kids are a result of good parenting and bad kids are bad on their own. And while that's, well, let me put it this way, <laughs> we know it's not true. There's a general principle that the character of parenting affects the character of the kids. The character of the parenting affects the character of the kids. Now, I'm not saying all bad kids come from bad parents and all good kids come from good parents. We know there's enough grace in this world that that's not true all the time. But as a general principle, it kind of works itself out. The character of the parents affects the character of the kids. It's true at the family level and it's true at the national level. Part of the reason that we're jumping into the book of Micah right now is because our country is reckoning with some very difficult conversations. We've been doing a lot of, as pastoral staff, we've been doing a lot of reading, trying to understand the different dynamics that are, uh, that are at play right now. And it's hard not to go back into our history and see our, our country's history as a story of both good and bad parenting, if you'll forgive the analogy. It's a story of internal wrestling with some really big ideas. On the one hand, uh, our founding documents enshrined into the fabric of our culture thoroughly biblical ideas, like the fundamental equality of all human beings. We should be proud of that, incredibly proud of that. On the other hand, our history is rife with story after story of religious and political leaders using their power to sidestep those ideals and get what they want. One part of our history I just ran into recently in my reading that I was totally unaware of. Shortly after its founding, the colony of Virginia was struggling with a problem with their slaves. Missionaries wanted to evangelize the slaves, but the slave owners, who were themselves by and large practicing Christians, uh, refused because if their slaves became Christians, then they would automatically become free. That was the general understanding, and they didn't want to lose their labor force. So these two groups fought all the way to the top of the Virginia legislature, which was largely made up of clergy and pastors. And the legislator made a decision. Slaves who became Christians did not automatically become free, but stayed in their enslaved state. Great compromise, right? Now missionaries can evangelize the slaves and slave owners don't have to give up their labor force. Everybody wins. And bonus... Now you can preach messages to the slaves like, slaves, obey your masters as you would Jesus. Well, conveniently forgetting to teach the parts of Scripture that undermine slavery itself. Our great, 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 great grandparents used this book to justify oppression and dehumanization of others simply because their skin color was different. And we should be incredibly ashamed. 
And that perspective and vestiges of that perspective or that bias or that racism has been passed down to us from our founding fathers. The sins of the parents continue to permeate the house and ripple out. Samaria's disease is incurable. Micah says, it has infected Judah, it has spread to the leadership of my people, and even to Jerusalem and beyond, to all the towns and villages around. Now, maybe I'm I'm pushing the parenting analogy a little too far, but I do want you to see I, I got the idea from Micah himself, if you look at verse 16. Verse 16, Micah writes, after going through the list of towns to whom judgment is coming, he says, to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the leaders, to the capital, he says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. Those were uh, signs of lament, signs of mourning, for the children of your delight, for the children you took pride in. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. The children are the towns that he just listed in his sort of representative journey around uh, the countryside of Judea. He says, look to the capital. He says, hey, your sin has infected the house. It has infected your children. It is driving your own children to exile, to death, to the death of the nation, to the death of the future, to the death of... Your sin is causing the death of your children. So it's time for mourning. Cut off your hair. Make yourself as bald as an eagle. Fun note, um, the word behind eagle is actually a turkey vulture or buzzard. So make yourself as bald as a buzzard. It sounds better, I think, but, you know, eagles majestic and all that. Anyway, lament, mourn, make yourselves bald, cut your hair. The sin of the capital is forcing the children into exile. Or to put it another way, and he's going to turn the page here going into chapter two and kind of turn his focus off of the parents towards the kids. But right now he's saying, you know what, before we talk about how bad the kids are, let's talk about your parenting. Let's talk about the influence you're having on the next generation because you are embodying sinfulness and you're embodying these ways of living that your children are just picking up from you as normal that are in fact anti-flourishing, anti-God, against what he commands. So before we talk about the kid's responsibility, let's, let's talk about your parenting because the sins of the parent permeates the house. It has an influence. It can't not. But Micah does something interesting, I think, Uh, and I skipped over this verse earlier. If you'll go back to verse 8, he doesn't just command mourning and lament, the kind of lament that leads to repentance. He doesn't just command it. He engages in it himself. Verse 8, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Or since I don't know anything about jackals and ostriches, I like there's another translation that says, I will wail like dogs and screech like owls. So that's, that's how much I'm going to lament and mourn. When, when Micah looks around him and sees the sinfulness coming from the top, 
the sinfulness of leaders and rulers and the, the people who decide how things are going to be, the people who, who have built the nation around, and he sees how that sinfulness is spreading like an infection, how it's become a cancer in the body of Israel, he laments, and he mourns, and he howls, and he screeches, and then he gets up, and he does something about it. Now, as we walk through Micah these next couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to continue to be faced with the question, well, what are we going to do about it? Because every chapter is another cry against injustice and oppression and dehumanization at a national level, at a systemic level, at a city level, and at an individual level. So what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with Micah's approach here at the beginning that the sins of the parent permeate the house, that sinfulness can come from the top down, that we can be influenced towards unbiblical behavior simply by the culture that we live in and the people that are in charge? What are we going to do with that? Well, Micah did at least three things, actually more, but I only have time for three, that I would suggest we also do. And the first is the one I just mentioned, lament. Micah, you'll notice, he doesn't step back and sort of take himself out of the picture and say, all y'all over there, all y'all up up in Jerusalem, like you guys are the problem, get your house in order, and then we won't suffer anymore. He says that, But he doesn't say that until after he's lamented and wailed that the sin from the top has infected the towns around and is bringing judgment. We have to lament. And when we see him lament, what we're seeing him do is stay emotionally engaged and involved. Not stepping back, not stepping away, not saying, not my circus, not my monkeys but staying right in it and saying, I am here and I am part of this. You're not part of the solution if you remove yourself from the problem. Micah stayed in it. Second, we have to act. We have to act. Like What Micah did was recognize the injustice that is coming from the top, and that's not the whole message. He's going to shift in the second chapter to the injustice coming up from the bottom. But he starts by recognizing the injustice from the top, and he calls it out, which is our responsibility as well. And in this cultural moment that we're living in, it's our responsibility to identify and root out by, uh, bias and racism wherever we encounter it in the systems and structures we're part of, in the people around us, in the lives we live. Many of our founding fathers were Virginians, infected by the belief that African slaves were human enough to evangelize and subhuman enough to own. And that belief, that bias, has continued to be passed down to us. I mean, we too are operating within cultures and systems and a nation and cities that have these biases built in. In the same way that we think a good leader can motivate people towards good actions, we also have to admit that even a good leader's negative aspects are going to have an effect and has had an effect. So we have to 
look at ourselves and act to change, to learn, but we also have to look outside of ourselves and call others to act and change and learn. And where we see our leaders acting in unjust and dehumanizing ways, we have a biblical obligation to lament and to point it out and call our leaders to act justly, whether we voted for them or not. That's our obligation. That was the second thing, act. Third, stick around. We have to stick around. Way back in verse 1, it's just a quick comment. Micah preached in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, three kings. And it wasn't until the third one that actual reform started, which means Micah, at a minimum, preached for 16 years before anyone paid attention. Could have been up to 30-odd years. At a minimum, Micah repeated this message for 16 years before someone paid attention. So do we have that kind of patience to faithfully lament, faithfully act, faithfully call on our, our leaders and on each other and call on ourselves to change? Well, we should wrap this up. I, I'm guessing that for some of us, um, this isn't necessarily stuff that you want to hear, right? Leave the politics out of the pulpit. Others of you are stifling little cheers because you're like, oh, somebody's saying it. Some of you online have already logged off because you disagree with me. That's fine. If you're still with me, here's what I want you to know. Whatever side of these discussions you tend to find yourself on, whatever side of the debates you find yourself on, however uh, you would classify yourself, we promise to equally offend all of you. We promise when we read Micah, we will equally offend all of us in the room because Micah is not giving us the conservative solution or the liberal solution. He's giving us the biblical solution and one that all of us as followers of Christ are called on, obligated to learn from and to follow as we learn to walk justly, to love mercy and to live humbly with our God. None of us, none of us will leave comfortable. So let's pray. Father, you are calling us to a hard thing. As we, as our thinking, as our way of being in the world is confronted and transformed by your word. And as we are driven to this moment by the cultural impetus around us, calling for justice for people that, by and large, have not found justice in the way that those of us with lighter skin have. Father, this is a dangerous topic, one with its own energy Uh, And yet it's one that you have confronted head on in your own people and are forcing us to confront. We pray for grace. We pray for mercy. And we pray for the peace that comes with knowing we are yours that enables us all individually to look inside and see where we are ourselves infected 
by the sinfulness we have picked up from our parents and our parents' parents and the culture and the world around us. Many of us, Father, have no idea how rotten inside we are, myself included. We are like those who didn't know we were walking around with bad breath until we had to wear these masks all the time. The temptation will be to take off the mask so that we're not confronted with our own inner rottenness. I pray that you would give us grace to continue to confront the truths about who we are and give us the peace of knowing that no matter what we see inside, you have already forgiven it on the cross of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.